Well, when we bought our first home about nine years ago, one of the first things that we did was to plant a little tree in the front yard. I thought it'd be cute. You know, you can watch the tree grow as we grow. Planted it, came out the next day to look at it and check in on it. And you know what? That sucker didn't grow. <laughs> Same height. That was discouraging. So I thought I'd give it another day. Came back out the next day. Still no growth, right? Maybe I'm not very good at this whole plant thing. I don't know if you guys caught that or not. But it, it didn't grow. And I think that's just kind of, I guess that's how trees go, right? They don't grow super fast. They're not in a hurry. By the time we had left that house seven years later, there was a little bit of growth. You could tell. You could tell it had grown some. And then we moved into now our current home. And one of the things that we love about our home is it has three massive, mature oak trees that drop an insane amount of leaves and acorns. Like, it's, that's a different sermon. We'll just leave that alone for a minute. So that's about complaining. Um, but they're huge. They're mature. They tower over our house. So they give me a little bit of hope, a little different perspective, right? Trees, they do grow. They just take a long time. That's how trees grow, right? Slow and steady, little by little, doing the same thing, taking the water and the nutrients in the soil and the sunlight and photosynthesis and stuff that I don't know a whole lot about, but somehow it happens and it grows a little bit at a time. In today's passage, which is a long passage with a number of different integrated stories, is all helping us to see one thing, that people are like trees, okay? People are like trees. We grow like trees do, slowly over time, little by little. We know that this is true of us physically. Like, that's the obvious thing, right? You joke about that with your kids, and you see somebody, uh, a niece or a nephew or a grandchild or a friend's kids who you haven't seen in a while, and all of a sudden they shot up. But you don't notice that with your own kids. You don't notice that with yourself, really, that you've grown a lot. That's how we develop. That's how we mature. We know that's true of language. No, kids come out, no kid comes out of the womb with this intense vernacular, vocabulary, extensive, like, like big words. I'm just trying. <laughs> and <laughs> clearly, I don't either. <laughs> but you, you have to learn. Repet, uh, repeated phrases, they have to hear it over and over again and try it and try it and try it until it starts to come out correctly. It's the same with learning to walk, learning to read and write. It's how we learn to play sports, repeated muscle memory. And it's the same with behavior. If any of you have figured out a way to get kids to listen the first time and the only time, well, I'm ready to learn, right? I don't work that way. That whole, like, I told you once about that, right? That doesn't work. It doesn't work for me as an adult. Not only is that how we grow and develop physically, but this is also how we grow spiritually as children of God. And that's what this passage is going to demonstrate for us. That as followers of Jesus, we grow like trees, little by little, slowly, under the care of a patient God. And we grow through what ends up being really normal, ordinary, repeated means of grace. Let me show you what I mean. If you have a copy of Scripture, you're going to want to grab that, open it up. Uh, and if you're sitting with someone, that might be helpful. If you're not, it's fine. I'm just going to have you flip back and forth a couple times uh, between a couple of different passages. But if you have your Bible, I want you to open up with me to that passage that Paul just read for us. 
Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31. And what you're going to see is this, this section of Scripture that we're looking at this morning has bookends. It has two miracles of Jesus healing two different men, but they're remarkably paralleled in their telling, in their story. In fact, that's one of the ways that the biblical authors help us to see that he's doing something. He's trying to show us something. When you hear phrases and things repeated, you should, it's the intention is you go, hey, I've heard that before. Where did I hear that before? That's, a, that's like a highlighter. That's like neon lights. Hey, pay attention here. I'm doing something. I want to show you something cool. And these two stories of healing take place in Mark 7, 31 to 37, and Mark 8, 22 to 26. If you happen to be sitting next to someone, maybe one of you goes to Mark 7, and the other of you goes to Mark 8. You can figure that out between the two of you. Because I want you to look at the two stories. The progression is almost identical. It's almost identical. Jesus arrives at a town, two different towns, but he arrives at the town, and it says that people brought to him two different men who both had physical ailments. One was mute and deaf, and one was blind, both physical ailments that have absolutely disrupted every aspect of their lives. And it says both the stories say that the crowds begged Jesus to touch, it, to touch him, to place their hands on him. And in both stories, Jesus took the man out of town, away from the group of people. He took him away from the crowd. An intimate, personal, I see you, you're not a spectacle. I'm going to care for you. And he takes him away and gives him some one-on-one attention. And then in both stories, he does something that's really unique. He spits. You're like, this might skeeve you out a little bit. And be like, well, we're not supposed to do that, right? And, and in, in Jesus' world, in, in his day, ancient sources we can find now will tell us that, that they believe there to be some sort of like healing power in medicinal value in saliva, which for us, I know you can laugh a little bit at that because that's, you know, <laughs> if you watch my big fat Greek wedding, you guys spray Windex on everything. Apparently you just spit on things and that was apparently a treatment even for blindness. We look at that and we think that's weird, but what Jesus is doing is he's meeting people on their level. A man who couldn't hear and a man who couldn't see, Jesus communicates in a way that he would understand, hey, I'm going to do something, I'm going to heal you. And then he touches the exact places, the tongue, the eyes, and he's communicating almost in sign language, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to heal this. The stories are the same. Until the very end. And the stories go a little bit different directions. In chapter 7, verse 34 to 35, we hear this, that Jesus looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said, Ephatha, which means be opened. And at this, or immediately, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. There's immediate healing that takes place in this first miracle. Everything's the same, immediate healing. But what happens in the next next story, in the next healing? Chapter 8, verses 23 to 25. When he had spit on the man's eyes, he put his hands on them, and Jesus asked, Do you see anything? And the man looked around and said, I see people, 
but they look like trees walking around. Maybe if you squint your eyes right now, you can maybe get an idea of, of what it might have been like. He could see, but not really. And so once more, verse 25, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Mark is trying to draw our attention to here, not just by the two stories being told exactly the same way, but most importantly, Mark's point comes in the ways that they're different. This is how the Bible shows us things. It tells the same story, but it tweaks the ending. It does this all over the place. And it's in the different ending that his point is. And I hope that we see this more clearly, pun intended, uh, as we go along, and that as we see more clearly... It'll actually bring encouragement and hope to us. But so to understand, we have to look at what's going on in between these two stories. So join me in Mark chapter 8, verse 1. And as we look at this story, this story will also start to sound familiar, won't it? Mark chapter 8, verse 1, a large crowd gathers. And this story is what's called the feeding of the 4,000. If you were here with us two weeks ago, you know that we just looked at the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And again, it's the exact same story using the exact same verbs in the exact same order. Mark's doing this on purpose. Jesus comes. He has compassion on this large crowd. He notices they're hungry, and he tells his disciples, feed them. He works the same miracle with the same series of verbs in the same order using the same materials. Bread, fish. He takes the loaves and fish. He gives thanks. He broke them. He gave them to his disciples to distribute. The people ate, were satisfied, and the disciples picked up extra pieces. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly like chapter 6. Pastor Bill just preached it two weeks ago. There's a few differences. There's 4,000 versus 5,000. There were 12 baskets picked up in chapter 6, and there's seven picked up here. In chapter, in chapter 8, the first in chapter 6 was a predominantly Jewish context. And interestingly enough, chapter 8 here, is they think that it was a predominantly Gentile picture or crowd, which is meant to paint a picture for us that, that Jesus didn't come just to meet the needs of and to rescue and, and to give life to the Jewish people, but to the nation's. But why repeat the story all over again, right? It's not like we can just, in our world, we can just write whatever we want. We can type it, and it doesn't take up any extra space, really. It's no big deal. But Mark, Mark's writing on really expensive scroll and parchment. Like, why does he choose to write the same story all over again? In fact, the parallels continue. You might get sick of me saying this. The, par- the stories keep right on going. Because we have this, if you would take chapter 6 and 7 and look at chapter 8, and if you would put them side by side, chapter 6 and 7 is the whole thing is retold in chapter 8. And it follows this pattern. Feeding of a large crowd, followed by them getting into a boat. Chapter 6, that's because he's going to go and Jesus is going to walk on the water. We looked at that two weeks ago. But in chapter 8, it just says he got in a boat. Like, why, why include that detail? Immediately after that, in chapter 7, verses 1 to 23, and then 8, 11 to 15, you see Jesus getting into a confrontation with the Pharisees. 
The first version of that, chapter 7, was when they accused his disciples of not eating with clean hands. And I can tell you that the Pharisees didn't really care about hygiene. They were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to find a way to pin him at doing something wrong so they could expose him as the fraud that they believed him to be. And that same thing happens again in chapter 8. We've seen this throughout Jesus' whole, whole ministry, his whole life. But in chapter 8, they come to question Jesus, your Bible says, which is like calling an argument with your spouse a discussion, right? It's, it's not neutral. It's not like, hey, we were discussing something. No, they came to trap him. They're coming to try to, to pin him and catch him doing something or saying something wrong so they could expose him. The motivation of their testing of Jesus doesn't come from testing him in faith, but actually testing him in unbelief. And right after that, chapter 7 and chapter 8 both have these really strange conversations about bread. This woman says, throw your crumbs to me as a dog. We talked about that last week. And now you've got this conversation about be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. And the disciples are like, is it because we forgot bread? I don't know what's going on. It's not clear. Followed ultimately by the miracles that are our bookends. Back up and review this for a second. Chapter 6 and 7 run this story. Feeds a large crowd. Get into a boat. Have an argument or confrontation with the Pharisees. Talk about bread in a really strange way. Miraculous healing. Chapter 8. Feeds a large crowd. Gets into a boat. Confrontation, argument with the Pharisees. Talking about bread that they don't understand. Miraculous healing. Something is going on here. Why would Mark do this? Why would he retell the same stories all over again? Why follow the exact same pattern? Great question. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, oh, it's because we have no bread. That's what he's talking about. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000. How many basketful pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they answered. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketful pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? Do you still not see who I am? Do you not yet understand that what I've come to offer you is not just bread that you have to eat again and again and again that can't actually, it can bring you like really small lowercase l life. But I am the true bread. I have come to bring you real life. Do you not know who I am? Do you not know that I've come to bring you the only thing that can satisfy not the hunger of your body but the hunger of your soul? These healings that I've done, to which the crowd says in chapter 7, verse 37, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. 
Do you not realize that those are direct references that Isaiah promised the Messiah would do? He's quoting Isaiah. Do you not understand what I've come to do? I am the chosen one, the promised one of God who has come to make things right and renew all things. Do you not know that I am the chosen one, that I am God in flesh, that I've come to rescue you? Do you not understand that when I said very early on in my ministry that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the good news that I am the king, do you still not understand? And we don't hear an answer to that. We don't hear an answer, but we see an answer. Because the answer actually comes in the form of what would be maybe called a visible parable. In chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, in that last healing. Verse 22, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man, and they begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes, he put his hands on him. Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like they're trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands in the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. You know that this is the only miracle in Jesus' entire ministry recorded for us where he doesn't accomplish the miracle 100% in one shot. You never hear a story of Jesus casting out half the demons. He, he doesn't heal like one man's leg and he's got a lame other leg when, they, when he can't walk. This is the only time where Jesus' healing is not complete 100% all the time. Why? Because Jesus botched the miracle? He messed up his magical process? No, of course not. That's not what's going on here. He's doing this as a visible parable for his disciples to experience. Jesus, it says earlier in Mark chapter 4 that Jesus never taught without using parables. And this is no exception. Except instead of telling a parable, he lets them experience the parable. He lets them live in the parable. And the point is this, that people are like trees. Jesus repeats these miracles in the exact same order for his disciples' sake because they don't get it the first time. Because they don't understand. Do you still understand? Do you still not understand? I'm sorry. Uh, Not really. I think I understand. But it's kind of fuzzy. These two bookends of this passage. One healed from his deafness and his muteness immediately. The other from his blindness. Serve as a parable for us to find ourselves in. Because there's something about being a disciple of Jesus that brings about both immediate healing and gradual healing. Immediate understanding and gradual understanding. Let me ask you this. When do you think that the disciples understood who Jesus was? When did the disciples believe And the answer to that depends on which gospel you read. Because if you read John, John's gospel, his retelling of Jesus' life and ministry, in chapter 2, 
after the very first miracle that Jesus does that's recorded, when he turns the water into wine, you find the disciples believed in him, it says, chapter 2, verse 11. Right out of the gate, they believed in him. But then if you read Mark's gospel like we've been studying, it feels a little bit different. Because just a week or so ago, we read the verse in chapter 6, verse 52, that says, they did not understand the loaves. This is right after he multiplied and fed 5,000 people. They didn't understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. And even again, when Jesus is doing the same exact miracle for just a different number of people, and he says, hey, these people are hungry. Why don't you feed them? Do you remember their answer? Where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Oh, gee, I don't know. Maybe go to the guy who just did that a couple weeks ago. Maybe go to me, Jesus is saying. But do you still not understand? I do, but not fully. I do understand. Like the mute and deaf man, there is an immediacy to their spiritual healing, to their understanding of who Jesus is. They did believe, and they demonstrate this over and over again by bringing all of their questions, all of their doubts, all of their fears and their confusion to Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple, to come to Jesus, to stay with Jesus. And yet, they didn't fully understand, did they? They could only see and understand Jesus in part. He was kind of fuzzy. In fact, the passage right after this is the hinge of the book of Mark. It's the confession of Peter when Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And he gets a bunch of different answers. You're John the Baptist. You're Elijah. You're like just a great prophet. Then he looks at his disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? And this is Peter, the famous spokesperson of the group, says, you are the Messiah. And a couple verses later, that same Peter gets told by Jesus, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand what I'm doing. You're the Messiah, ants, ants get called Satan. Like what? That's... I understand and I don't. I see, but not fully, not clearly. This whole passage is so encouraging to me personally in my walk with Christ, in my frail faith. Because like the disciples, you and I are like that blind man who can see in part, but not clearly, not fully. Not yet. For those who belong to Jesus, we are those who have been released from our chains. And if you actually were to go back into chapter 7, verse 35, when the, when the first man's tongue was loosened, it says. They, they leave out a couple words in translation because it doesn't make sense. But what it actually, like kind of word-for-word translation would say is, the chains or the bonds of his tongue were loosened. In other words, physically, he he could speak. But Mark's doing something there. The chains were broken free. 
what he was enslaved to, he is now free from. And if you're here today and, and you are not trusting in Jesus and you are finding yourself that that chain metaphor describes your life, that you feel bound by fear, bound by anxiety, bound by darkness, bound by your own sin, and nothing you have done in life has been able to bring freedom. You've never experienced the chains falling off of your heart. Never experienced that freedom. Jesus is the only one who can do that. You can try all you want to break free from your own chains and it will not work. Jesus is the one who can do that. And if you are a believer in Christ, that is your experience. You've been healed. You have had this amazing grace that I once was blind, but now I see. There's a whole bunch of metaphors you could use there. But this immediacy, our salvation, at the moment we look to Christ in faith, the old has gone, the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus, period. That when you put your faith in Christ, you are immediately in that very moment adopted as a child of God. You are given a new name. You are made an heir of God. You are a co-heir with Jesus Christ himself. You are fully forever forgiven from every sin, past, present, future. You're justified. You're declared right before God. It's done, period, immediate. And yet, we're also like the man who only sees in part. Where people look like trees, it's fuzzy. First Corinthians 13 says, we now only see a reflection as in like a mirror. But then, when we see Jesus face to face, we will see clearly. What I know now in part, then I will fully know one day, even in the depths of which I am fully known. Here's how I know for a fact that we live in this place of understanding who Jesus is, but not understanding who Jesus is. Do you still not understand? Yes, but not fully. I know that because to understand in the Bible does not simply mean have intellectual answers. If Jesus says, do you not still understand? And they answer, well, of course you are. I know who you are. I can answer the correct theological answer. There's one problem with that. There is one group of, peop one group of beings, I'll say, in the entire gospel story of Mark, who has every time they interacted with Jesus nailed exactly who Jesus is. Do you know who that is? It's the demons. The demons know exactly who Jesus is. They've got the information. But when Jesus asks, do you still not understand? He's asking, will you rest in me? Will you love me above all else? Will you live a life of surrendered obedience to me? Do you understand? Do you trust me? You can cast your cares on me. I'll be with you. I will provide for you as I always have. But then a new worry comes up in our lives, doesn't it? And immediately, almost immediately, my, faith, my weak faith cracks and I have forgotten everything that God has done for me in his past. 
how he has provided, how he has cared for me, how he has been with me through every up and down. I forget. Do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? Will you love me above all else? I know that I don't fully see and understand Jesus as I ought to because there are so many competing loves. Because to understand who Jesus is, there's only one response to that, which is to fully surrender yourself and to pursue him above all else, nothing else. And yet I'm prone to wander, as the great hymn says, to go looking for life in some other things, in my reputation, in the comfort of food and sex, In being in control of my own life, I don't surrender to him. Do you still not understand? Will you surrender yourself to me fully in obedience? Because to understand and see Jesus for who he is is to effectively write a blank check on your life to say, Jesus, I belong to you. You're the king of the universe. Whatever you say, I'll do. And that's modeled and demonstrated by obedience but so often I believe I've got a better way. You and I are just like these disciples. Do you still not understand? What do we do with this passage? How do we apply this? How do we start to understand how this impacts and integrates into our lives? And I'll say two things with that. Take heart and lean in. Take heart. It's so typical for us when we try to understand what do we do with passages as we read them in Scripture. That's a right question, a right passion that we have. How do we apply this to our lives? The problem is in our fervor to do so, we so often skip the most important application, which is to understand exactly who Jesus is. That every piece of Scripture is first and primarily supposed to show you who Jesus is before you see yourself. And what I see in this passage about Jesus amazes me. Because he patiently does the same things for the same hard-hearted, confused, partially blind disciples over and over and over again. He is patient. As a parent, I find myself frustrated having to repeat myself more than once. But like a good, gentle parent, he lovingly corrects, instructs us, reveals himself to us little by little. And when he does that, he doesn't do it the way that you and I so often do it to get behavior modification. Where we use fear. Where we manipulate. Where we try to flex to make it happen. But what does Jesus do? He uses his kindness intended to lead us to repentance. So that when you and I don't understand, when we don't trust, when we don't love him, We don't experience the throw the hands up in the air, ugh, again, I already told you once. No, we have a God who's willing to retell the same story in your life, word for word, detail for detail. It's his kind patience that's intended to lead us to repentance. More deep, more full repentance towards him. So that when we're stubborn, when we're confused, He meets us there. He's patient with us because he knows that we're like trees. And then we grow slowly. You ever taken the time to reflect lately? 
When I walked out every day to look at my tree, I didn't do that. I hope you understand that. I'm smarter than that. I do know that trees don't grow every day that quickly. Some of you were really concerned for me. Thank you. But after years, there were times where I'd step outside and be like, hmm, it has grown. You might do that, like I said, with your niece and nephew or some family member. You have grown. I haven't seen you for 12 months. You've grown. Have you done that with yourself? Have you ever sat back and looked and thought, God, you are growing me. I see more clearly than I did before. Sit and be amazed. This is really hard for us to understand. We live in an instant pot world where we can't wait more than three minutes for a pot of rice. We don't grow that way. Little by little. And as you understand the patience that God has with you, that ought to make us more patient with others, that we can be a little more bearing with our family, our community group, our kids, that person you're discipling, because they're like a tree. They grow slowly. It shapes even the way that we understand how we relate to, our, to the unbeliever you've been witnessing to in your PTO, at the gym, and at work. Because they grow slowly. In fact, to switch metaphors, you're more like a farmer having planted seeds and waiting for the initial growth at all. Be patient. Take heart. Your God is patiently at work using all things. Your suffering is not wasted. Even your rebellion against him is being redeemed. And by his spirit, Jesus is bringing greater clarity to your eyes so that you can see him more clearly. And as that's true, lean in. Join him. Ask him, Lord, help me to see you more clearly. And then join him with your actions. A friend asked me, we were talking about this passage this week, and, and she asked me, do you think the blind man was content with what he saw halfway through the miracle? Do you think the blind man was content with just, he saw something, that's great. They looked like trees and it was fuzzy, but at least it was something. The good news is Jesus wasn't content, right? The good news is Jesus looked and said, I've got more for you. I want you to see more clearly. I have more of myself to give to you. And friends, that is true for you. What God has prepared for you, who he is, he wants to give you all of himself. And if you want a proof of that, you look no further than the cross where Jesus held nothing back, gave himself fully so that you might know him. And he's committed himself to this. He's committed himself by giving you his spirit. And he's made a promise that spirit is a guarantee, it's a deposit guaranteeing that you one day will know him fully and see him clearly. And so as we lean in we join him, we ask him, we, we do the simple, ordinary things. We meditate on scripture. We don't just read it for the sake of reading it, but we meditate on it. We give ourselves to community. We commune with God himself through prayer, sitting, listening. We join him in what he is doing. But our hope, friends, is not that your ability to follow him is super strong. Because you've already shown 
our ups and downs. But our hope is that what Jesus says in John 6 is true. That Jesus says, all whom the Father gives me, I will not lose one of them. That our trust is that Jesus' hold on us is far stronger than our hold on him. And one day Jesus will return and our weak faith will give way to sight. And it will not be fuzzy. And it will not look like trees walking around. But it will be clear because we will see him face to face. Close with this. 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. For when Christ appears, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. Jesus, give us eyes to see. Help us to know you. It's going to take a miracle. And the good news is that's what you love to do. In the words of Ephesians, Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we may know the hope to which you have called us, that we may know the riches of the glorious inheritance that you have given to us as your holy people, and that we would know and that we would understand the incomparably great power that you have for us who believe. Father, we believe you, we trust you, we love you. Help us in our weak faith. Show yourself to us. Help us to see you. Lord, that'll be for our good and for your glory and for the sake of the world around us who needs to know this freedom. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.